Happening now, we'd like to welcome our viewers from across North America and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room, episode 200 for December the 2nd, 2020. My name is Wes Fryer, and I'm joining you from Oklahoma City, where we're a little rainy tonight. I am the Technology Innovation Specialist uh, at Cassidy School, but I also teach fifth grade Spanish this year <laughs> until January the 8th, uh, and I'm teaching fifth and sixth grade media literacy, which I will be sharing on the quote-unquote virtual main stage of ISTE tomorrow uh, at, I think, 10, 15 um, uh, Central Time. So excitement, excitement. But I am not only joined by the guru of the North from Montana, Jason Neifer, I'm also joined by Eric Langhorse. So I'll, I'll send the, the shout-out to Eric. Eric? Welcome to the EdTech Situation Room. Welcome back. Hey, thanks, guys. It was episode 200, so I just wanted to drop in and say congratulations. That is an amazing milestone for any podcast. Um, I'm an eighth grade virtual teacher this year in Liberty, Missouri. Uh, I teach completely virtually eighth grade U.S. history. Big fan of the show. I was telling these guys uh, I listen to the show often when I'm mowing my lawn, I'm working in the garage, I'm driving in my car. My family listens to you when we're on long trips <laughs> out to Wyoming to see family. So um, big fan of the show and uh, uh, just enjoy listening to you guys. Awesome. Thank you so awesome. much. Jason, welcome to episode 200. Thank you. I I was just thinking a little bit earlier about how, like, when you first start, like, episode 10 seems like a big deal, and then it's 20, and then it's 50, but 200 is a, it's a long stretch of episodes. And I think, I was trying to remember, I think it's 100 episodes is is the mark in television shows where you can syndicate and make money. Um, and the 200 is like, you know, that's, that's, that's Seinfeld numbers, right? And, um, you know, not that I think our show is of syndication value, but we have hit Seinfeld levels of episodes. So I think that's certainly a, a, a mark worth celebrating. Hey, we did have, uh, was it in Montana? It was a, it was some, um, local PBS station at one point that asked us if we could syndicate yeah, early. Yeah, yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. We're like, yeah, but I don't think they did that. So. <laughs> <laughs> that was when that was when Eric was still on the show. So he left, and you know, things just went down. yeah, oh, yeah. It went downhill from there. I was the I was the big market there. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, Jason, what are we going to do tonight on episode two hundred of this uh, this show? Well, uh, we have a series of links, and you can always find our links at our website, edtechsr.com slash links. It heads to our massive size Google document, where you can literally go back to episode one, if you like, and see what was on our mind back when we started on January 27th, 2016. But uh, tonight, we'll be talking about a variety of kind of ed, not ed tech, technology stories that have kind of an educational lens. we got some tech politics to talk about. We've got some political polarization to talk about. I'm to ramble on about Apple again, and I imagine uh, listeners that have been listening the last couple of weeks were like, we just buy a stupid MacBook already, so you can stop rambling on about it. We have a number of security articles to share tonight, uh, a couple hardware announcements, some Google stuff, uh, media literacy, actually a lot of links tonight, privacy, surveillance, web development, miscellaneous, our favorite category, and then of course, our geeks of the week. And Wes, you did a lot of link sharing tonight. You want to start us off somewhere? You bet. Well, I put this first one under tech politics. We're not a political show. We're not changing to a political show, but there are some interesting politics that are affecting, you know, not only the technology issues of today, but also perhaps, you know, the next few years. So this is Ars Technica today on December 2nd. The headline is Trump to Congress, repeal Section 230 or I'll veto military funding. 
And uh, as we've talked about on the show before, uh, Section 230 of the communications, I think it's the 1996 um Yes, Communications Decency Act um, is the piece of legislation that shields online platforms like Twitter and Facebook from liability that, um, you know, lawsuits basically that can happen because of content that's either posted there and kept there or content that's taken off. And, of course, our president has been upset about some of his tweets being, you know, uh, tagged and, and labeled and, um, you know, some the the, the way in which uh, – the platforms basically have, have been moderating content. So the article says we really would move into, um, you know, strange territory and unfamiliar territory if this happens, <clears throat> because since the, we would say modern web, the, uh, the web 2.0 interactive web has been around, you know, we've had this, this act. And so, um, you know, folks think maybe this isn't going to happen. It's not going to, it's not going to be that big of a deal. Um, but I, uh, I think it is interesting to see, you know, how there's not a lot of policy pushes happening from the White House right now that we know about, but one of them would directly, you know, impact uh, technology and social media. So uh, any predictions from you guys on what would happen? I, I'll, I'll say one more thing. I, you know, signed up for Mastodon, which is this federated Twitter, basically, which <laughs> people made fun of me. What are you doing with this? But like emails federated. So you don't have to just use like back in the day, America Online or Gmail, right? They all interoperate. Well, Mastodon's the same way. Anybody can spin up just like a mail server. Anybody can spin up a Mastodon account and they interoperate. Well, the one that I had signed up with a few months ago actually was saying we're shutting down. And, and it sounded like it was because they were anticipating Section 230 protections going away and that they would be, you know, um, basically sued for the, the content that they would have. And then I think someone else has bought them. And honestly, I haven't logged on for, you know, for weeks. So uh, thoughts, uh, Jason, about Section 230? And do you think we're going to is this going to be the tech correction? Are we going to see something happen here? I, I, I keep reading about this in part because I want to kind of figure out like what made this mean to me, me, mean to me personally. But I guess the problem with this is, is that, I mean, if you're looking to destroy big tech, yeah, I think getting rid of section 230 could introduce a lot of, of legal challenges, uh, in, in all directions, right? Regarding some of these platforms. But in the end, I, I just don't know how you make platforms responsible and not users. Like it, it feels like that that, that has to be uh, an exchange that then tears apart, tears apart the internet. And I've heard a lot of analysis on tech podcast about this, and I'm kind of cribbing a little bit from, from, from some of those pieces, but I mean, the, the, you know, you don't really have a constitutional right to post on Twitter when there are, I mean, there are other ways to express your views and to try to turn every platform potentially into a constitutionally protected place to say whatever you want, especially since what a lot of the people are complaining about are things that it maybe not a huge majority, but a majority of people would say are abhorrent or somehow dangerous or uh, 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 maybe something that is not something that we really want, uh, you know, openly available. I think that just gets really sticky really quickly and gets rid of the nature of, of, of kind of open Internet platforms. But I know that you're all about the Mastodon, Wes. You can find me on Parler because that's where <laughs> I'm hanging out. I did get in a Parler account um, and it's bizarro. Twitter. I mean, that's the way I would describe it is that it, it is, um, it looks a lot like Twitter. You can post as long of a thing as you want. Like there's no limits on, on, 
And so in a lot, in a lot of ways, it's kind of like medium in that you, know, you can post longer articles on it, but there's clearly no, I, I guess I don't know how to put this. There's no, there's no adult supervision on parlor. Right. And so, and like everyone is like going out of their way to, I think, you know, say things like, um, uh, uh, you know, set themselves uh, on fire. Yeah. To yeah. To get attention. And then, um, I, I, there was a clever term that I read about these a couple of weeks ago that I can't remember, but there's been a lot of fake news sites in Montana, for example, that are, that look like a news site, but are, you know, uh, oftentimes run by the same like seven or eight sites and they sound like something official, like the Montana, uh, post gazette, uh, dispatch or something that has been a real problem in Montana. Um, and in some cases it's the same two or three people people that are pushing them on. And it's interesting because those sites tend to be traded much more aggressively on parlor than they do on, on, on Twitter. But I don't know. I, it, it's hard to know. One of the reasons why I read a variety of views is that I like to be challenged. And I also like to know what people I disagree with say. And so that, I think that helps me. I can't change my mind occasionally when I'm presented with new data. So I guess from that standpoint, uh, you know, different social networks that may support one worldview or another is interesting from that standpoint, but I think the two, uh, the, the this kind of threat to to uh, you know, hook military funding to this you know thing that a lot of people said would be dangerous to the internet. I just think it's 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 mostly uh, embroiled in chaos. Well, the article also points How about out you, Eric? That before we'll throw it to Eric here in a second. Yeah. The um, before this happened, the tendency was, weirdly enough, for platforms not to moderate because folk, they were coming down more on platforms that were moderating for how they were moderating. So it was yeah. having this weird effect of almost a hands-off approach. Um, and it also points out that there's some proposals to modify the act and, and make some changes in the law. But, you know, basically no, nobody knows. So uh, it's, it's – and it, yeah, and it's, but it's cer- certainly something that would have a big impact. Eric, what are your thoughts? I mean, I think that in particular, this threat, I mean, we're talking less than 50 days and, and, and tying it to something as big as defense spending for the entire you know, military. I mean, I think that it's kind of a, you know, a threat that's never going to actually see the, the light of day. But I mean, it is interesting that, you know, we're seeing more moderation with Twitter and, you know, primarily with um, politics and the president and all these different things. So. I, I don't think that this threat's going to go anywhere, but obviously the idea of more moderation and controlling, it's not going to go away. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think it's going to be with us for a while. I, I just think as a, as a taking a step back, thinking about like how important social media has become in politics and just in life in general. Um, I looked the other day on when my Twitter anniversary was, and it's like December 12th of, I think 2008. So like, you know, just imagining 12 years ago when we were thinking about, is this going to be more than what I ate for breakfast and stuff? And now it's how <laughs> it, it's how people, you know, announce major things in government and politics and policy. And how many people have gotten fired on Twitter? In the yeah. Last, yeah. I mean, in a few years. Crazy. Yeah. yeah. Right. Well, one other article in this category, uh, this is also Ars Technica, uh, and this involves the FCC. Senate rushes to confirm Trump FCC nominee in order to hinder Biden admin. So obviously, you know, a new administration coming in, there are, you know, huge numbers of officials that have to be appointed and put into place. <clears throat> and so I guess because of um, 
Ajit Pai, I'm not going to say his name right, because of the yeah. current FTC chair stepping down, um, there is, and anyway, this nominee, if approved, would uh, make a 2-2 Democrat-Republican um, uh, board or whatever, and then they would have to wait for Senate approval for a fifth person who would who would split them. And the person that has been now nominated specifically has endorsed the president's views on the Section 230 and evidently, you know, is to try to try to stop that. So, you know, it, there's going to be a lot of pieces to pick up, uh, not to <laughs> reveal my political sense too much. But, yeah, it's it's going to be challenging no matter what, you know, in 50 days when uh, the, the new administration takes takes office. Um, it is critical, I think, that we have this be a nonpartisan issue when it comes to like the digital divide, E-rate funding, the need that we have to increase, um, you know, broadband capacity, especially in rural areas, but really everywhere. Uh, and so, you know, hopefully those kinds of issues might not be politicized as much. It would sure be nice to see that. But anyway, those were a few thoughts from the political side. So, Jason, any other thoughts? Do you want to take us to another article? Yeah, let's let's go elsewhere. Um, in part because all I do is think about politics all day. Uh, let's uh, do a couple of kind of techie techie ones. This one was interesting because this is such a follow that we talked about a long time ago. Um, this is a reminder from ZDNet on December first that Google Cloud Print is dead in one month. And the only reason I want to mention this is because I'm almost certain that most schools have figured this one out because this has been going on for at least two years. They've announced that Google Cloud Print's dying. But I will tell you that I personally. Have had to kind of tweak this because we've been using Google Cloud Print in my home for, well, years now, in part because we had, we bought a, um, a, a brother black and white laser printer, a workhorse black and white laser printer uh, for, you know, just average printing. And it had Google Cloud integrated into it, and it was super easy to get it into our account. I shared it with my wife, and it was done. So my Chromebook, her MacBook, um, and, and my Windows PC all print to it without issue because it was super easy to utilize Google Cloud Print for that. And as it turns out, because of the way I have my network set up, it hasn't been – because it goes to the Internet first and then back to my printer. With that service unavailable, it's been a little more challenging to get the plethora of, of devices in my home to all see and then print to that that printer. And if you kind of set and forget a home printer device that, that's utilizing, signing into the Google Cloud to be able to utilize printing across your home, you may have to think about other alternatives. And it's interesting because um, I, I, I've been watching some of the discussion on the Google Admins group uh, about some folks that haven't really planned around this. Most people have already dealt with this, but it's not necessarily as uh, easy as uh, it, it looks uh, 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 at face value. And to kind of give an example of this, I do have a Chromebook. They use a system called Cups, which is a Linux-based way of accessing printers. The reason why I know that is because when I have used Linux as a desktop or laptop operating system, it's not super easy to configure. And as it turns out, the Chromebook version of this is not super easy to configure. So if you think maybe you... You bought a, a laser printer, inkjet printer that you that you remember signing into Google to do this. Just know one month from now, this is going away. You may want to consider just stopping printing, which is a joke. Jason, at that, Jason has frozen. <laughs> oh. We we did we we have not actually moved because we've been running that cloud print on a local server. 
<laughs> don't run a don't run a speed test, Jason, if that's what you're doing right now. Um, we we have been running a server at at school, or we 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 have for years um, that would allow for uh, Google Cloud Print for Chromebooks to work with these multifunction, you know, copiers and basically anything that had a Windows driver, you know, you could run this Cloud Print uh, service and then make it Cloud Print. And it was really cool. And it was a little wonky. And sometimes when that server would go down, things had to be brought up in the right order. And sometimes anyway, you just it, it took the right touches to get it going again. But it's been solid. D- does anybody know why Google like ditched this and stopped supporting it. Cause that's kind of a mystery to me. We've had weird things happen with Google charging for stuff. And you know, the Google uh, tour creator is, you know, we've talked about is wiped out. So any insights or guesses on that? I haven't seen anything, but then, then again, like the, the thing that's so surprising about that is I, the, I, I know that early on, this was sometimes challenging to set up, especially when you were trying to print from Chromebooks that you're first rolling out. But I, I mean, this, what I loved about this is it was really set and forget, right? Like we started using this in the office, uh, in part because it, we were able, I was able to set up basically a little mini print network inside of our network because all of our inner office people are signed into our Google domain, which is not the University of Montana's. It's just our sub organizations. And then I give the six people that I want access to give them access to printing. So, I mean, I, I, I don't know anyone that, that disliked this as a strategy, especially if they were all in on a Google suite, but you know, Google also killed Google reader, which the super nerds loved. So. Yeah. I don't know. It's weird. Any thoughts, Eric? You know, I have not had a printer at my house for gosh, I don't know, 15 years and I, wow. teach, I teach in a school. So I just send it remotely to our copier yeah. and it gets done. And I, I benefit from the IT guys figuring that stuff out. So on this topic, I have nothing. I just, yeah, I, I use my school, my school uh, network for that. So. But pretty sophisticated school printing to be able to do that remotely. That, that is pretty slick. That's cool. Yeah. yeah. We, we can send stuff to the copier from anywhere in the building and, um, well, the good, the good news for the Knifer household is I think the, the, the apples are returning. So perhaps uh, <sighs> the world of Bonjour will, yeah, make, make the air print and, and everything. Just, you'll be printing from your watch, you know, within a couple weeks, Jason. Just soon enough. Yeah. That'll be just real exciting. <laughs> well, that's an easy segue. We have two quick Apple articles. And I noticed, Wes, you have one about Apple Fitness Plus. You want to talk about that one? Sure. So uh, I think it was back in September. Uh, Apple was talking about, I put this one there, miscellaneous. Or do we have an Apple category? Oh, we have an Apple category. Um, Apple Fitness Plus instructors tease upcoming service as late 2020 launch nears. And this is from 9 to 5 Mac um, on the 29th. Um, I was actually really impressed. I, I, t- I tend to watch all the, the Apple events in their entirety, although, you know, sometimes they get a little long. Uh, but, but look, you can't see the evidence, but I need encouragement to exercise. <laughs> and I have an Apple watch. And I, I think that Apple is fantastic in the way in which they're helping us. First of all, they're focusing on privacy, but number two, giving us more data about biometrically how we're doing in our lives. Like this is, I mean, I, I think if money wasn't an object, we would all benefit from more regular check-ins with our doctor where they would do more labs and find stuff. I mean, we all probably heard stories about people who was like, yeah, they just randomly found this. And then, you know, and sometimes they find stuff early, et cetera. So I think that side of the health of, of Apple's ecosystem is wonderful. And I also think that, you know, encouragement to be fit 
You don't actually have to go get a gym membership. You know, there's just, you can walk in your, in your neighborhood. You can, you know, do simple exercises that, that don't require a ton of equipment and, and expense. And so I think this is really positive. I'm not going to be making any promises here, but I, uh, I, I have been looking among other things in terms of just wellness and health goals for myself, thinking about how am I going to be, you know, including more exercise and fitness. So yay, Apple. And, um, you know, I, I just want more, more encouragement on this line. So Eric, do you have a smartwatch and what, where, where have you been with all of the I smartwatch do not. Stuff? I did have a Fitbit years ago. Um, it's probably been maybe four or five years, but I, I used to have a Fitbit. It did encourage me to kind of keep track a little bit of how much I was walking and stuff. Um, I then used my phone for a little bit. Um, the pedometer and stuff wasn't as accurate, but um, it's been interesting. My daughter's in seventh grade virtual. And so for PE, one of the ways that she can log in and show like how much she's done is if they do have a smart watch, they can like upload that data and that kind of stuff. So um, I haven't, I know there's been a lot of black uh, Friday or, or cyber Monday uh, deals on Fitbits and stuff. So um, I'm not opposed to it. It's not probably on the top of my priority list right now for stuff to buy, but um, I think that it can encourage you to kind of get up and move in when you can see how much you're actually doing. So, yeah. Well, it's one of those things too, with just technology, you don't necessarily, owe, sometimes the tech people get, you know, put in this geek camp where you're sitting in a you know dark room, you know, playing video games all, all, you know, for hours and hours that happens of course. But I just, I think it's really good how we have a, an increased focus on screen time and the awareness of how important it is to live a balanced life and then, you know, go outside, exercise those things. I know the last time we talked to Jason, we were talking about virtual teaching and stuff. And I know Jason brought up the fact, you know, get up and move around. And so like, I'm actually right now, I'm at a, a standing desk. I took a, an old dresser um, before the pandemic and re, refinished it and stuff. But this is typically I teach and I stand and can walk around. And so I do feel like I'm moving a little bit during the day. I'm not probably getting my 10,000 steps in by doing this, but I do feel like I'm at least not sitting um, as a, in a sedentary uh, pose the entire day. So but I know we talked about that last time a little bit. Yep, absolutely. Well, and, and that one of the reasons why that, that I was so stunned and I loved using, um, I love using, um, uh, a Fitbit is because when I went from being a classroom teacher to, to working at a desk all day, it's just so shocking how much I was walking around my classroom. And when I've taught at the U, I tend to be, I, I, you guys will probably get this reference, but none of my students ever did. I'm, I'm kind of a Donahue teacher. I'm in the audience with the microphone, right? And I'm shoving that microphone in kids' face, right? That's certainly the way I used to teach social studies. And, um, you know, that's just not the reality when I'm on the phone all day, right? So, um, or on a Zoom call. And as exciting as Zoom calls are, they're not real active. And I've tried even things like uh, uh, like treadmill desks, right? Like I would oh. go downstairs. There was one in, in, in the College of Ed at the U and – um, like, and I have to put it on really slow because I'm not coordinated enough to, you know, go very fast, but like, yeah, I was trying to answer email. And uh, so, yeah, you need, you need something to kind of tell you how much your life has changed when you're doing stuff like that. <laughs> uh, well, Oracle, I think Jason. 
Uh, one other, yeah, big quick Apple article. Uh, we'd mentioned this a couple weeks ago, and the only reason why I'm, I'm saying this is because, uh, uh, because I, I, this may slightly delay the purchase of my Apple laptop, which is forthcoming, but we talked about how that Apple made a very distinct decision to buy a, or I'm sorry, to utilize the 13-inch MacBook Air, the 13-inch MacBook Pro, and then the Mac Mini. Like, they picked those form factors first, in part because uh, I'm sure the technology is ready, but they really wanted an entry-level before they released the professional stuff, in part to kind of talk professionals into believing that the M1 chip could work. And this the article is all over the place. The one I found for the show tonight is from Gadgets360. talks about how that there is a MacBook Pro 16 in the works. The MacBook Pro 16 was introduced about a year ago. It's the replacement to the MacBook Pro 15. Um, I've used a MacBook Pro very, very 15 very briefly. It was kind of a hand-me-down at work before we signed it to another staff member. I loved it beautiful, big, bright screen, but man, it was a hefty thing to carry around. It is really interesting that they're talking about the difference between the M1 chip and the professional chip, which would be an M1X is what they're calling it. It's going to add four performance cores to it. It will also likely come with a much larger battery too, which is that bigger form factor, which means it should get decent battery life. But um, I have decided not to put in every time I find a YouTube video that's, oh, how great the M1 chip is, because that was what I did the previous two episodes of the show um but uh, yeah i'm i'm super excited it just it looks so great and uh coming soon to an office near me so the fact that we're talking about 12 cores in a laptop yeah i mean does that not just blow your mind and remember apple used to have a 17 inch um portable you know they Back had in the like day. 17 15 13 uh so interesting interesting well, well, you know, like, years from now, it could be a doorstop. Go ahead, Eric. Well, with all this new, um, you know, stuff that Apple's coming out just for power, as a virtual teacher, I'm thinking, I'm always thinking, like, you know, how this is going to change stuff. My whole classroom is that laptop, right? I mean, I have a second monitor and stuff, but instead of the district investing in physical things for a teacher, if you're a virtual teacher, are they going to start investing more into, let's give you, a nicer. I mean, I, I mean, I have a MacBook Air right now, 13 inch. I mean, it works great. But like, if you can really kind of like help a virtual teacher and boost up their um, their machine, could they invest a little bit more in that? Because they're not going to be investing in some of the physical stuff. Um, so maybe timing wise, that might be something that some districts are looking at for a virtual teacher. We're going to really give you something nice, um, which hopefully will eliminate some of the glitches and stuff like that. So, well, yesterday absolutely. I just did a workshop for our, our elementary teachers, <clears throat> tips for remote learning. We've been face to face since August 14th and we've had kids and then some teachers go remote, but, and then we had uh, our high school go remote for two weeks. So we've had, we've had some in and outs, but the whole school hasn't gone remote. <clears throat> and with numbers being what they are, you know, who knows? Uh, my number one thing was second monitor, you know, oh, whether yeah. you teach from your classroom, yeah. you know, using that extended desktop feature and being able to, you know, detach the webcams and put your kids up on the big screen and then use your screen for other things. Or uh, somebody told me today, his wife for like 99 bucks picked up a 27 inch HDMI yeah. screen. I don't know if it was on Amazon or whatever. I was like, really? Yeah. Yeah. incredible and i yeah, think that's can, a, that's an important investment great great monitors for about a hundred bucks i mean yep i have a second monitor on my desk and then up here i bought one of those um amazon basic um arms and i can move mm-hmm. around but i can't imagine doing this now without a second monitor and i never used a second monitor until um this fall when i started teaching virtually full-time yeah 
that's the number one thing. If somebody says, well, what, what should I do to upgrade? I'm like, yeah. you gotta, you gotta spend the money and get a second monitor. Um, it'll change completely the way you're doing everything. So, yeah. and one really interesting thing I want to mention that, that you inspired me to think about, Eric, is that uh, I, I've had a lot of conversations with teachers that are, are, and not quite remote. They're in the hybrid or they're trying to do a lot of live Zoom classes. It's a little bit different than teaching fully online. But one thing that's also true is that if your hardware is old and, and, and slow and not keeping up with, you know, the technology and running a virtual meeting, on a computer or participating in a virtual meeting on a computer is a relatively uh, processor and memory intensive activity. And I know that, um, and I won't mention specifics, a family member of mine that teaches uh, elementary school, um, I was talking to a couple of days ago and she was using a five-year-old Chromebook that wasn't a premium Chromebook when it was purchased five years ago. And, um, you know, was having problems running Zoom meetings for, for her elementary school students because it was just too taxing on the processor. And a lot of times when I think about, like, there is a lot of legitimate ways you can use older hardware in a school, right? That you have to keep it up. You have to make sure that's refreshed and it's using an old spinning hard drive. Nope. Replacing it with an SSD will make a big difference and maxing out RAM and that sort of thing. But the bottom line is if you're spending eight hours a day on a machine, that if it's slow or if the keyboard's terrible or the trackpad's terrible or uh, you have a tiny monitor or it's a tiny screen, it uh, I just don't think um, it, it's going to be really trying on your patience and you're just not going to be as as interested or efficient or engaged in the process. And I think that, that that is a conversation that will likely happen after this is all over with, too. If we're making kids look at a computer or spend time on a computer four or five hours a day in a one-to-one environment, let's make sure they have something that's really conducive to learning absolutely like little tiny stuff like on my macbook air i can't put um as many students on the screen as i would if i had an updated one so like i have classes with 38 kids so it's a little tiny thing but i could see all of my kids if i have an updated one right now i've got half of them at a time and it's just a little thing but i mean being able to see your whole class at one time would be would be a nice thing to be able to do so Absolutely. Absolutely. Are yeah, you all Zoom or Google Meet or what are you all using as a platform? We use, we use Zoom and our district for the virtual teachers upgraded to like the, I don't know what it is, professional. Zoom Pro, whatever. Um, yeah. Yeah. So. Wow. And I'm going to mention one quick thing because uh, I just remembered. I'll put the link in in the show notes. Um, uh, I bought uh, I bought two monitors this year. I had old big industrial Dell monitors. They were flat panels, but big industrial Dell monitors that weighed a lot of, uh, of weight. And I replaced it with a, a a larger flat panel 4K monitor. And then I have a side monitor that's that's flipped on its side. That side monitor uh, it goes up and down between a hundred dollars and hundred nine dollars. But it's just the standard issue HP. Um, uh, business monitor, but it, it's, it's, it's perfect. It's really nice. Uh, if you spend $220 on two of these bad boys, and I couldn't agree with you more, Eric, getting a, a, a telescoping arm to put clip onto a desk makes it really convenient. It looks really cool too. Um, <laughs> it, and that's a really great setup, uh, especially if again, you're on a computer all day long, cause that's, that's the way it's, that's the way it's working. That's the one. I got one behind me right there above my desk. So. Nice. Yeah. And I have mine on a standing desk so I can, uh, I, I have a, a Home Depot, um, 
a, a work table that is it's it has a hand crank that goes up and down, but it's, it's the the poor man's standing desk, and um and it's you know that with monitors clipped to it, and you know it's a it's a pretty great workstation. Well, enough of this positive hardware talk. Let's get to some dystopian media literacy stuff. <laughs> do I, do I, I need to get my tinfoil hat for you guys? Absolutely. <laughs> no, I, no. I, I actually wore one. I don't remember what episode that was. but I remember. Um, I remember. Yeah. So I, I just conflated some categories. We had security separate from privacy surveillance. These things can all be kind of woven together. New York Times, November 27th. Um, Amazon wants to get even closer, skin tight. And this is a great article by Kara Swisher, who, if you don't follow her and, and read her, man, she is amazing. And so uh, she actually is kind of telling a little story about her family and home and the ways in which she's embraced the, you know, smart speakers and, and Amazon and, and not really fearing any of that. But uh the article is subtitled, In Pursuit of Surveillance as a Service, Jeff Bezos' Intent on Recording Even Our Moods, How Much Personal Data to Give to Amazon. And back to what we were talking about on Fitbits and smartwatches and that kind of thing, we've mentioned surveillance capitalism and, you know, the a documentary, The Social Dilemma, stuff like that. There's a dark side to tech companies or companies of any kind, you know, collecting so much data about us. And when you... When you under, when you understand, I think we do a little bit, uh, in, in the, the model of surveillance capitalism, which is what Amazon, you know, is, is driving a lot of their sales on, right? Because the more they know about all, all of us or each one of us individually, the easier they can nudge us with an advertisement, with a suggestion for us to purchase something. But it's not just that. It's also that data that can then be bought by whoever wants to use it. And then we can have the political ads or, or anything else like that. So uh, excellent article basically saying Amazon is going even further. And it's just this, this is more of the same. It's the surveillance capital capitalism model but it gets into that biometrics, moods, uh, and, and some of the stuff, you know, we've heard about this with online learning, with face tracking and stuff like that, right? It's, you know, we've talked a little bit about proctoring exams and how, you know, there's been some some big uproar and hoopla over that in some some certain places. So I think this is a, this is a great article, and I'm not in the Amazon camp, but I know you are, uh, Jason. Uh, Eric, where are you with smart speakers, and, and what do you guys so think? I think the first one we bought was an Echo, um, but we don't even have that plugged in anymore. We have, I think, five Google Home Minis maybe throughout the house. Um, I listen to podcasts or, you know, hey, play NPR, that kind of stuff. Um, but probably the thing we use it the most for is as a timer. I mean, <laughs> like my wife's constantly like, hey, set a timer for 15 minutes, that kind of stuff. So we're we're a Google um, family in that regard. Okay. Jason, what are your thoughts about uh, this, the sort of mission creep of uh, and, and receding privacy, you know, with all with all of this and Amazon? Are you thinking are, are you ready to go? What's what's the Apple uh, smart speaker that's like ridiculously expensive? You ready to order yeah, one of those? The now? HomePod. I, yes, <laughs> that's part of the problem, right, is that and I'm sure the home. In fact, the, the HomePod, that has got the little like fuzzy thing on top that goes. I'm sure know. it sounds great. Yeah, I'm sure it sounds great. And I'm sure it's amazing looking. Right. Because that's that's Apple. And I can't believe I'm buying back into this ecosystem. But the thing I would say <laughs> is that um, 
you know, I, I like the Amazon hardware, right? Like the, the first generation Echo. In fact, I have one sitting on my desk here, although I will note for the record that I have it on mute. I don't talk to it ever. And, um, yeah, I'm just double checking to make sure that I wasn't, uh, that I have credibility here. It is on mute. And part of the problem for me is that, and I, I, I use it as much as a Bluetooth speaker than I do as a network based speaker because it's also a wonderful Bluetooth speaker. But the bottom line is, is that, um, I don't, um, I, I have to have a little bit of trust of Amazon there. And they have an awful lot of my data because I buy a lot of stuff on Amazon, sure. right? Um, that, and, and so they, they have a lot of that already. Uh, the other, uh, the other article that relates to this is from, uh, from Throd.com on November 24th talks about the Amazon sidewalk service. And I'm not sure if you guys have heard of this one. It was announced around the same time. It's basically that, uh, you have to, you have to turn it on, but, uh, it basically you, because, uh, uh, you know, Amazon, uh, saves your Wi-Fi stuff in, in, in the cloud. Now your Wi-Fi information. And the idea is, is that, um, your, if you have speakers, speakers or, uh, IOT devices kind of at the edge of your network and it isn't getting a totally great signal that it might try to tap into your neighbor's signal. If they're also on Amazon, that's why it's called mm-hmm. a sidewalk service. And Paul Therott, I think very correctly calls this really creepy. And also I don't want other people's stuff on my network, right? I locked that down for a really good reason. And I mean, I, I think there's a lot of sense in the ecosystem in Amazon. And frankly, it works better for me than the Google stuff does in that it, it seems to, um, well, it, it works for the stuff that we use in my home. Right. And, and my wife and I use, but yeah, I, um, I, I, I was talking to a, a friend of mine a couple of weeks ago who is a former IT director. He runs a, a, an, an I, a, a private IT shop in Montana, and he said that that they had been having problems on their home network because all their IoT devices were creating something that was diminishing the output of their Wi-Fi. And I thought to myself, we've been having some minor issues uh, here, and our, our Google uh, Wi-Fi hardware at home is getting to be on three, four years old now. So, you know, maybe it's time for an upgrade. Maybe it's not, but all of our IoT devices, which includes a half dozen speakers, a bunch of plugs, a bunch of other uh, devices that are, uh, you know, on our network, I mean, that that could be slowing things down, right? And, um, you know, maybe I want to consider going in another direction, but, you know, we still have so much you know, security questions about all this extra stuff we're adding to our homes. And I'd be willing to bet a dollar if we went back to our first shows in 2016, 10 times in the first six months, we talked about the security problems in Internet of Things devices. And four years later, it doesn't seem like, well, almost five years later, it doesn't seem like we have much resolution to those problems. 32 devices on <laughs> online right now at our house. Oh, so, uh, I want to check mine because I've been mocked before with a number of devices uh, well, by a, someone on this podcast. That was a fun question, and it probably still is, to ask people. Uh, and before apps like the Google Wi-Fi app, you know, I, you had to just guess. But asking folks, how many devices do you have at your house that connect to the Internet? Um 25, yeah, 25 oh, right now. I got you, so. got you beat, got you beat. Yeah. I've been adding some, I've been adding some smart plugs and got, got the, the lights all around that, you know, come on at dusk and go off at sunrise. Although we had a mystery because they were going off and I thought it was my wife. Cause if you, if, if somebody, anybody in the house says turn off 
the lights and they say the activation word, all the lights go off that are on smart uh, plugs. And it turns out it was our youngest daughter who, um, anyway, had, we had to fix her blind and the, she wanted to turn that light off. And so she was the one doing it, but I was, it was like, <laughs> I, I know I don't have a, if this, then that recipe, what's going on, you know? So anyway, 21st century problem. Very much so. Um, let me see. Let me do, other, do another quick uh, one here, just because I like to do this as a regular rem- reminder. CNN Business talks about on November 19th, yes, people are still using 123456 and password as their password. And I highly doubt uh, that that most of the target audience of our podcast is using 123456. But, uh, you know, if you're using the same simple password everywhere, um, you know, you should not do that. Use a password manager. I would also note that I've become, you know, obviously a big password manager guy. I got, I, I got a couple light hacks in the last couple of years. It happened again earlier this week. Um, I received a notification in email on Monday morning that an account that I don't really remember creating, but it's not really a big deal. Like it would have been a site I would have created an account on that someone had logged in, that there was a new login from a device. And I looked at the password uh, that was saved there. It was a long compromised password. Uh, I knew it was a long compromised password. And if you've been around on the internet for 25 years, like a lot of adult users, uh, there's probably an account or two in in your day that if you were utilizing you know uh, short insecure passwords it's probably been hacked so please 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 use a unique password on every website please 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 use a password manager absolutely uh eric what do they do at your district in terms of resets are they still having you guys reset them every six months or something or do you know what they're doing with that or and do you have yeah. two-step required we're not two-step required, but I think it's every six. I think it's every six months. Required yeah. To do, yeah. Right. So we're not using two-step yet. So. Yeah. Well, hey, the holidays are. We've had the, the Thanksgiving holidays, Christmas holidays are coming up. Maybe it's a great time to do that uh, audit. And if you're using a password manager, even Google now in Chrome has an ability to compare your passwords. I notice how it frequently, you know, pops up when I log into an old site or something like that and said, Hey, you know, this has been reused or you want to audit your password. So we want to, we need to take, take Google up on that. Um, let's do another uh, one for this security privacy surveillance. Uh, this is ZDNet on November 27th, Microsoft's three, Microsoft 365's productivity score. It's a full blown workplace surveillance tool says critic. And of course this is a headline that's written to be as harsh as possible to get everybody to click on it. But basically Microsoft came out, I think a little bit after the pandemic began, or maybe it was out earlier. Um, it was announced in October, I guess. Um, but maybe it had been out, uh, April was the original um, uh, announcement. Uh, and so the Microsoft CEO, uh, Satya Nadella said, quote, we've seen two years worth of digital transformation in two months due to remote working. So Microsoft released the productivity score feature in preview this May. And he goes on. But basically, if you have this turned on, you can see how much or how little folks are using your Microsoft 365 suite. I don't know if Google has anything, you know, comparable to this. I, I can see where this would be of interest, but I also certainly can understand how this, again, maybe seems creepy and, you know, can be seen as, as surveillance. But look, the, Microsoft is not the big offender here. The big offender are companies, and we, I don't have any of these links in the show notes tonight, that are 
actually turning on, you know, key, keystroke logging, uh, webcam tracking. There's, you know, there's a lot of spyware that is out there for, for people. It, you know, some of it actually masquerades as parental controls. Monitor your kids, but it's actually used as like stalkerware that people will, will do things to, you know, ex, uh, ex-girlfriends and boyfriends probably. I don't know. That'll be sexist, I guess, and thinking that more that's males, you know, doing that to females. But anyway, the software is out there, and you know, companies are using these kind of things to to track folks as well. So, do you guys think this is creepy at all, or is this, uh, you know, just a good faith effort on Microsoft's part to try and give IT admins and and organizational admins more more insights that are helpful into their organizational use of technology? I mean, I would say it probably for me is a little bit more on the creepy side. I think there's other ways you can measure productivity other than doing that. Um, I don't know. I guess I look at things as like a teacher and, um, you know, I feel like my district trusts me to get my stuff done. And I mean, if I knew that every single key that I typed in was going to be logged and they were checking to see how productive I was on using certain stuff, that'd be a little creepy. So. And crazy to think about employees having to deal with that. I mean, because that is yeah. happening now. And, and I guess I would add a second thing is, is that trying to come up with single scores or 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 bottom line measures can oftentimes lose a lot of data. My guess is, is that if you took the three of us, three tech savvy educators and that have, you know, workflows that work for us, that that if you tried to add objective measures to that or seemingly objective measures to that, try to measure productivity, it would look pretty different, even though I'm pretty sure the three of us get our jobs done in spades on a a regular basis. Right. And I think that's that's part of the problem. Um, A lot. I I mean, a lot of people want to boil things down to a single measure. And, you know, it's part of the criticism of of standardized testing. Right. That that trying to trying to tell a complex story with it with a single score is probably not going to lead you to much seriousness. Now, that said, you know, like we when we evaluate teachers in my organization, we do look at things like, you know, response time to grade assignments uh, we look for and this is a this is a little more um, subjective but deep feedback on individual assignments you know based on standards we set for our for our, our teachers but if we miss the boat and we look at what seems like an objective measure and we get it wrong and the teacher explains to us you know, as part of our evaluation process oh no no I'm doing it this way we're like great thanks for letting us know like that's something there are multiple ways to do things sometimes there's not but most times that there are and I worry about that both in context of uh, monitoring employees. I also worry about that in context of students as well, that, um, you know, I I know for sure uh, running a virtual school that we have students that don't log in that often, but are getting quality assignments in and doing doing the work they need to do. It's about the output, not about the, the measures internally getting to that output, right? And we have students that struggle pretty mightily that uh, spend a lot of time uh, inside of individual lessons and maybe, uh, you know, the per minute uh, 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 value isn't as great, but they're still learning in the end. So I think, uh, yeah, I, I just I read the articles and I just thought that it just it seems so short sighted for what seems like a, uh, a, a been a lot of revolution going on at Microsoft in the way they approach the world. What you did share, though, in that answer is, is something we don't have right now at our school because we're not using a Canvas or a true full-blown LMS. You know, we're, we're mainly using Google Classroom, and we've got a, a student information system that we cross-post grades to. Um, being able to have a robust LMS that can really give you 
some information about what's going on can be academically extremely helpful. I mean, number one, I think you all, you've told me, or you've mentioned in the past, Jason, how you have different triggers that can help get students assistance. And yes. so if certain things haven't happened, you didn't log in within this number of days, you haven't, you know, posted this or whatever, uh, you can get those folks help. I mean, I've been amazed by some of my uh, sixth graders, you know, who, who have been in our middle school um, for over a year and they didn't know their login to our information system, which is where they're supposed to be able to, you know, see their report cards and, and their grades and things like that. And, you know, we just don't have that kind of system set up. So I think that would be uh, a shout out to say, hey, if you're not using a full blown robust LMS, you need to get there. And if you have one and you don't have those kind of triggers that can help you help students and maybe also help teachers, then that would also be a really important thing to do because right. remote learning and hybrid learning and whatever you're going to call all this is just going to keep on, you know, being bigger and bigger in the years ahead. Well, and I would say that uh, we have a design uh, concept internally that I kind of created a, a, a phrase for. Someday we'll be able to have the staffing and time to do this fully, but I call it accordion design, which is that a course, especially an online course, really needs to be as big or as small as the, the, the user that's using the course, right? We have students that are not very tech savvy, that may have particular learning issues. Their reading level is lower. Their tech savvy is lower. Their uh, deep reading uh, skills are lower. They could use things like closed notes or uh, various structures to help approach the learning. But we have some students where literally that's going to be an impediment to their learning. They're able to really navigate with relatively few instructions uh, uh, the curriculum, and they're going to be better served by a course that's much smaller and much more svelte. And we've talked about, this is one of the great things about Moodle, that other LMSs aren't necessarily as adept at, but Moodle is a much more of a blank canvas than other LMSs, and that you can build a lot of in interesting looking things that look nothing like Moodle. But if you, know, if you are a learner in the first three weeks and you've never taken a course from us before, then the course probably should have more instructions available to you because you're new. But once you're going in three or four weeks, then that course should automatically shrink as you're being successful. You can turn on the extra guidance, but like an accordion, it could be bigger or smaller depending on how you need it. And that would be you know, kind of a, a, you know, big data style, uh, a collection of data to be able to determine that. But here's the problem though, right? Like as creepy as I find that Microsoft stuff, those scores could be used very, uh, I think meaningfully, and they could all be also be used not very meaningfully, right? In that if you're making judgments on it or you're doing something terrible like posting the scores or, uh, or, or making management decisions based off them without collecting other data, that's why I think that stuff comes off as creepy because the bottom line is if you're misusing it, then all the data in the world is just going to, uh, uh, build ill will. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Well, we're, we started a couple minutes late, so we've got about uh, 10 minutes. Uh, Jason, what other articles would you like to hit tonight? Well, um, I, I don't think I mentioned this yet. And if I have West, then just smile and pretend that I'm not, uh, losing things out of my mind. But there was an article a couple of weeks ago that I don't think we covered, but I just wanted to mention it because of a specific issue. This is from Public Press on November 9th, but, uh, WordPress, uh, which is the content management system, uh, powered almost every political website during the 2020 political election cycle. And the reason why I mention that is because if you're teaching a web design course in 
in your school or district and you have the ability to bring WordPress into uh, your classroom. And it's something we're working on right now uh, at my home program. We don't have the ability right now. It's a little complicated. Why? But that's our eventual goal to, to, to utilize WordPress as a, as a design precept. You're missing out on what powers most of the world's content websites. And I know, Wes, you've utilized WordPress. I've utilized WordPress. It runs actually not just websites at MTDA. It, it also runs a, a, one of our content management systems, delivers contents to students. But it is such an amazing open source platform that if you're not playing with it or if you're not utilizing it or if you're a hobbyist and you want to know about, more about web design, WordPress is really the place where it's at. And a lot of people don't know how many websites run uh, run via WordPress. In fact, EdTechSR is a WordPress site. Um, WordPress is pretty great. Absolutely. And I guess the thing that I've experienced, you mentioned hacks. I mean, the the level of, host, of um, hostility, malware, bad stuff on the web. I mean, you, you have to amp up your security game uh, as a user today with passwords, for instance, but also when it comes to, to web stuff. And, you know, depending upon where you're at, you know, it may make sense to pay a few bucks a month and, and have somebody, you know, worry about all of that stuff. I have had to navigate some hacks before uh, and, you know, and then pay people <laughs> who are a lot geekier than me, you know, to clean that stuff up. So back your stuff up. That's a big lesson. Uh, that's not just applicable to WordPress. Uh, but that was, I saw that article too. And that's, it's pretty amazing. I mean, how many websites are powered by open source? Open source Linux, you know, is, is, I think it's still over 50% of the web servers in, in the world. Um, and, and WordPress and, and other kinds of products. So there's another plug for, you know, open content, open source software, not just assuming that everything, you know, has to be a, a, this is in the week of ISTE, right? Not everything has to be a vendor paid, thing you know there are there's phenomenal capability that's out there um and and the free and open source or FOSS software movement um is alive and well and there's a lot to a benefit so eric are you, you an audacity podcaster back in the day or what, what oh was yeah your choice? audacity yep edited yep. audacity yep yeah and it's still going strong still, i mean yeah, I, I, still, I still use it to edit stuff every once in a while so me too I've been using, there's a, a an online one called Twisted Wave. In fact, Friday, I'm going to start a family oral history project because I'm in my second mm -hmm. trimester with kids. And uh, I was pleasantly surprised because I've used Audacity for so long too, but it's web-based and kids can save right to Google Drive. And, yeah. you know, and, and it even lets you do Amplify, you know, for those, or, you know, and little editing and stuff like that. So yeah. Yeah, tw Twisted Wave has come a long way. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, it's phenomenal. All my kids did all of their their uh, podcasts and, and audio interviews on Twisted Wave, which um, turned out great. All right. Uh, let me uh, hit one more security one really quick and then we'll see if there's anything else. Uh, this is a, uh, about Telegram. Uh, this is from Vice on November 25th. Five reasons you should delete Telegram from your phone. Um, when it comes to secure messaging, this is something that is not as maybe visible to everybody because it's, un, you know, under the hood kinds of stuff. Is your data being encrypted? But WhatsApp, you know, is owned by, face, by Facebook, uh, but all of, of the WhatsApp 
messages are in, encrypted by default. That is not the case for Telegram. And this is really the best blow-by-blow um, description I've read in an article about why, if you're thinking about using some kind of, of messaging app other than just text messaging, which, by the way, is, is a good idea because text messaging <laughs> that is, is not in, encrypted. I, I message can be, but, you know, regular text, text, text messages are not. Um, the five reasons that the author highlights here is chats in Telegram aren't encrypted automatically end to end. They have access to your contacts and your metadata, which can have a lot of information. They really don't moderate content. So Nazis, conspiracy theorists, you know, uh, it's, it's the Wild West in terms of moderation. Uh, the groups and channels, they say, are not safe. And it's also not forthcoming with journalists. And, you know, anyway, their conclusion is to ditch Telegram. So uh, I think that Edward Snowden, who knows a little bit about security, <clears throat> has, you know, come out real strongly against uh, Telegram and in favor of Signal. Um, I have both of these apps. I really don't use them that much. The summer conference that I went to last year, ironically, Cho, one of them chose Telegram as their messaging app. And I was kind of like, Hmm, I don't know if we're modeling, you know, best practice as far as privacy and security. So are you guys using any of those apps and have any any thoughts about them? No. I do not. Okay. There you go. There's a quick I, answer. <laughs> I will mention one thing. Um, I've gotten a little addicted to TikTok and it's kind of embarrassing, but uh, I installed it just because I wanted to understand it a little better. I had a parent a couple weeks ago tell me that and and I it was Almost in jest, so I didn't laugh at the comment at the time, but like, I just don't know why my kids not participating more in this online course. They're, I mean, they're on TikTok like six hours a day. And I know that there was all those security questions about it. And so I downloaded it because I was curious. And there is a, there's a large, uh, teacher contingency on TikTok. There's a large, uh, 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 people that, that barbecue and make pizzas. And, uh, there's private plane TikTok, which is super interesting and whatever topic you want, there's probably people creating content there. But I keep wondering to myself, I mean, that was a security risk that was supposedly so significant that they were telling, you know, people on on military bases, don't have TikTok on your phone, right? Like if you were a military personnel, delete TikTok because it it has all these security problems. I'll be honest, I still can't figure out, I mean, other than location data, right? And I guess maybe what you're into. So uh, spoiler alert, it's a lot of cooking uh, recipes for me and also some uh, uh, light political stuff. But the bottom line is, is that, you know, this security holes, and I I, I trust that that the government uh, is warning for a reason, right? But the bottom line is that security threats could really, you know, be associated with any kind of app. It's it has to do with uh, the surveillance state and, and the rise of China and uh, facial recognition. You know, the amount of data that is being you know sent in via that app and, and the way those servers, the company that owns that, the Chinese company, is not a social media company. They are a facial recognition company. So it's pretty fascinating. And I think years from now, we'll probably be reading about the success story of the Chinese coders, you know, who are able to leverage so much data from the West. You know, via this app that has taken off like wildfire because it is the most popular app among the middle school kids. Of course, they're playing mm-hmm. Among Us now. That's a super popular game. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it's even more than Fortnite and Roblox is big with my fifth graders. But yeah, it's uh, it's huge. And I've only only dabbled in it a little. So 
Peggy says it is a very creative app. So, and it's free. So, but it's one of these apps that if you're not paying for it, you're the product. And, you know, are, are we going to be, you know, in some way harmed by the fact that we're the product for that? That's the, the topic of the social dilemma documentary. So go watch that on Netflix. Right. Well, and for the record, one of the ways I knew I had to delete the stupid app off, off my phone is like, uh, was like someone was, was, was promoting Amazon product. I'm like, I need that. And so I went and bought it. And I was like, Oh, uh, God, no, please. No. Like you gotta, you gotta, you gotta let it alone. And I've, I've literally lost an hour and a half to it once. Like I'm there just flipping go. through okay. and the logarithm's really good. And then literally I look up and I'm like 90 minutes into the stupid app. So that, that's called doom scrolling. So yeah. yep. Eric, how, how do you and your wife navigate the parental side of social media in your home? Uh, is it so a- our youngest daughter had TikTok and she took it off her phone. Um, I mean, I see TikTok videos on Twitter all the time. So I guess if it's viral yeah. enough, it's going to go to Twitter. And that's where I spend most of my time. So I yeah. tend to kind of be a, a one platform. I do I do stuff on Facebook, I guess, a little bit. But uh, Twitter is where I spend most of my time. So, All right. Well, it is the top of the hour. I think we need some Geeks of the Week. So, uh, Jason, you want to kick us off with what you got this week? Yeah, I'm 99% sure I've already shared this, but hey, it's a 200 episode, so why not do a throwback? Um, this is the time of year where I love buying, like, nerdy stocking stuffers for friends and family. Uh, in the past, I've bought things like cables for colleagues, and nothing says I love you from a techie person than a high-quality cable. And there is so much junk on Amazon, especially if you're utilizing uh, lightning connectors or USB-C uh, uh, charging. It, it can be dangerous to your device and actually to you physically to use an off-brand cable. And if I am not otherwise checking into the cable itself, the go-to brand name on Amazon is Anchor, A-N-K-E-R. It's great stuff. They make a wide variety of things, and if you're looking for techie stocking stuffers, a good quality nylon braided USB-C cable mm-hmm. from Anchor is really a must-have gift. So Anchor.com, you can see all the products that they offer. It's everything from uh, charging cables to power banks to power strips, uh, uh, docking stations, really great stuff. I'm a big fan of Anchor, and it's an easy recommendation to give to others. And if you are with Anchor and would like to sponsor the show, you can talk to us later because that was yep. entirely un, uh, unsponsored. <laughs> EdTechSR.com. That's right. I, that's that's the brand I buy for all of our, like, chargers for the car, cables. Uh, we've bought um, power strips from them and always been happy with it. So Yep. And I would say I've also purchased their USB-C – or not USB-C, their Bluetooth headphones as well. Um, and we, uh, we've – well, we've moved away from USB headsets at work towards Bluetooth stuff because it's it's cheaper and plus the USB-C headsets now are, are not super great. These are also really high quality. They the, the brand name there brand name there is called Soundcore. That's Anchor's uh, Bluetooth uh, line. Super great stuff. Awesome. Well, Eric, you got a geek of the week for us? Well, I mean, I'm just scrolling through here and I saw you guys put a link about um, China's uh, lunar lander, and um, I'm a big space geek. Uh, I'm a nap. Uh, NASA Smithsonian um, educator. I'm on their cohort thing, but so I'm always watching like launches and all that kind of stuff. So I did watch it launch the other day and um, they're getting some great images back. I know there was kind of a, a controversy at first. I was watching online, like, did it land? Did it crash? Um, but it looks like they're doing a great job of getting uh, some uh, samples. And um, I think that it's 
just fascinating to see another country um, besides the United States. We tend to just be so um, focused on what the United States is doing with space, but um, that they've got, I believe they've got land. They're now landed on both sides of the moon, I believe, right? Yeah, they got three oh. active rovers on the moon now. Yeah, so um, it's just kind of a cool story to see what they're doing and how they're going to get it back. And um, yeah, so that would be Absolutely. my week. There you go. Well, thanks for pointing that out. I dropped the Ars Technica article uh, that we did have in there, and it says <laughs> the zoomable image that they shared, I guess, yesterday has 15,000 by almost 8,000 pixels. So incredible detail. And the big uh, test is going to be tomorrow on Thursday because it is going – they've been scooping up material. And so tomorrow they're going to launch a small spacecraft to return – and if everything goes well in the next couple of weeks before, you know, 2021, uh, they're going to be the first country to return samples from the moon in four decades. And the only countries that have successfully, you know, launched something back from the surface of the moon uh, is, the, you know, the, the Soviet Union and the United States. So absolutely. I'm going to share that as a wonder link with my kids, I think, this this uh, in up- upcoming days. If you have All right. Apple TV, there's an int- I don't know if you guys have seen the um, what's the series on Apple TV. It's about oh the, the one about if if the if the if the Soviets beat us yeah the red red moon is it red moon no, it's not like red that? moon gosh Ooh. what is it um I'd have to look it up but it's a, it's a series that Apple TV created and it's interesting okay. I mean it's obviously all fiction but um yeah. it's interesting and they've got a couple different seasons so if you're into space that's kind of a cool Ooh, and I love the Cold War theme too how interesting oh, yeah. Oh, yeah yeah it's definitely I mean that plays out big time so Give, it's for cool. yeah. That's a good reminder because I think we had started that and then discontinued that. All right. So mine quickly is a tweet. Um, This is a pretty incredible drone video of Christmas drones. The only thing I've seen like this uh, for the Air Force Army game a couple years ago at the Air Force Academy, they had just like, I don't know if it was thousands, hundreds, a lot of drones that basically did what, what looked like a firework show. But they had colored LEDs, and so they, you know, did all these different things that were so cool right over the cadet area, you know, at night. And and that video I shared as a wonderlink for my kids. This is, you know, Santa Claus. But, of course, you know, we had a, a leading Iranian nuclear scientist that was killed by, I think, a remotely controlled vehicle this last week. And nobody's claimed credit for that. Probably Israel, maybe the United States involved. So this is cool, but it's just interesting. I mean, this is a a classic example of, you know, can be used for good, could be used for bad. Um, But interesting to see a new Christmas light display coming to us via drones. So when you're not here pontificating, Dr. Neifer, where can folks find you? I love me the Twitter tech savvy teach. And then I also love to work with the Northwest Council of Computer Education blog.ncce.org. All right. How about you, Eric? I am on Twitter at E Langhorst. That's where I live on Twitter. And I am W Fryer on Twitter. Uh, probably will share a few things on my Speed of Creativity blog. Uh, probably to include, and I don't know if they'll release publicly the video, but I've got my slides for my uh, media and digital literacy in middle school presentation that I'm sharing for ISTE tomorrow. And uh, I'll be 
be tweeting a few more things and I'm probably going to be consuming a lot more from the ISTE conference after, you know, this week that I've yeah. been able to do this week as I have been teaching. But this is the EdTech Situation Room. We want to thank Eric Langhorst so much for joining us for our 200th episode. Great to have Eric back. Uh, maybe we could do a tech shopping cart. We actually did that for a few years and then that became the yeah. EdTech Situation Room. So uh, if you have not already, please subscribe to us on YouTube. You can also subscribe to us on Twitter, which is the best way to find out if we have any kind of late changes to our show. Usually we're here on Wednesday nights at 9 p.m. Central, uh, 8 p.m. Mountain, whatever that happens to be in your particular time zone. Check out all of our show notes as well as very small MP3 audio and smaller video forms of our podcast on edtechsr.com. And you can always ask your favorite smart speaker to play the latest episode of the EdTech Situation Room. Until next time, stay savvy, stay safe, and the holidays are soon upon us, folks. So be safe out there.